Welcome to the Peaceful Power Podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Clausen, and today I have Alexandria DeVito on with us. She is the founder of Poplin, a pre-pregnancy wellness company for couples. Poplin helps couples get ready to get pregnant, starting with the most comprehensive pre-pregnancy wellness assessment out there. So welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Andrea. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. So I would love to kind of dive into, you know, what inspired you to create your pre-pregnancy company? Because that is something that um, I know I, in Ayurveda, it's very important. So I'd love to know like how that kind of came to be with uh, your own life. Absolutely. So it was, um, it was a bit of a journey. I spent, uh, you know, much of my early career doing healthcare consulting and so kind of got into the world of healthcare through that lens. And then um, I ended up going back to school. Um, I went and got my um, MBA from Harvard Business School, and then I did a master's in nutrition on the side. And then kind of after I had finished my education, I decided to kind of go and work on like on the front lines, like I, I like to say, um, as a clinical nutritionist. And what ended up happening was I had a lot of clients that were coming to me that were struggling to conceive. Uh, and I also had a bunch of friends that were, you know, over coffee chats and over dinner were kind of whispering in my ear, asking for advice and guidance. And at some point, you know, I had one friend who, who said to me, you know, I, I, uh, I really could use some support. I'm, I think I'm resourceful. I, I think I'm smart. I think I'm capable. I'm willing to do anything, but nobody can tell me what to do. Um, and I thought, this seems odd, right? It seems like a very important thing that, you know, a lot of um, resources would be dedicated to. And so it just started as like, let me see, you know, if I can be helpful here. And so I, I dug in to kind of the literature and, um, and I realized that, um, that she was right, that a lot there, you know, there was a lot of resources out there, but the credibility of the resources was really wanting. And, you know, if you think about it, the last time most people had any sort of sexual education, right, they may have been 12 or 13 years old if they had it at all, right? Um, and the, the message that, um, you know, is effective for preventing pregnancy potentially um, at 12 or 13 is not the same message that's effective for promoting pregnancy in your 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, and so I realized that there, there was an opportunity for an upgrade. Um, and, you know, that as a, as a relatively type A planner myself, uh, you know, there's all these resources for everything that we plan for, right? We plan for careers, we plan for weddings, we plan for home purchases, we plan for marathons. Uh, you know, why are we not applying the same thing to getting pregnant? Um, and so that was kind of the, the impetus for, for thinking about, you know, what was missing in this space. And I think the other big thing that we're really, and I'm passionate about trying to do differently is incorporating couples into this conversation. Um, because what I, what I like to say is biology does not care about our cultural construct that fertility is a female problem. It is literally a 50-50 biological equation, regardless of the relationship construct. So, you know, kind of whoever your reproductive partner is. So we really want to change the conversation around kind of when you're starting pregnancy preparation and who's involved in, in pre-pregnancy prep. Mm, yes, that is so vital. And that's something that I think does get missed often. And that's what in the Ayurvedic practices, you know, as we talk today, I'm like, oh, I'm curious just to kind of see how they compare. And just if you've mm. even studied a little bit with the Ayurveda, because that's usually one that I always am like, nope, the partner has to be on board too. And, you know, people are like, okay, that might be harder. So if people are kind of listening and they're like, okay, well, I'm on board to this. Maybe my partner's not on board or not willing to change habits. Is there anything that your company does to kind of help ease that transition maybe for a partner who might not be as gung-ho about doing the changes? 
Mm. Yeah, I think this is such an important question because I think there is so much uh, blaming and shaming, I think, kind of in and around fertility, and it can put a lot of pressure on relationships. And then I think there's also a lot of uh, maybe ego involved. Um, and, you know, because it can be a very um, uh, difficult thing to think like, you know, I may not be able to contribute in the way that I want to on, on the female or the male side. And so, you know, how do you approach this in a more effective way? Well, so one of the things that I think is helpful is, you know, instead of approaching this from a place of a problem, right, you're, you're coming at this, like, just like you would prepare for a wedding, right? Both, you know, partners are often involved in that. You're going to parent together, right? So how can we make this instead of, you know, I feel like there's an opportunity to make fertility fun again. Like mm -hmm. what happened to the fun? And so how do we, you know, how do we plan for this? How do we get excited about this? How do we think about, you know, how we both want to show up? And so taking it out of the context of trying, which I think can be very stressful and put a lot of pressure, you know, the planning phase can be fun. Um, where you can envision your future and you can talk about that. So I think that's one thing that I found a lot of the couples that we work with find refreshing about this approach is it's, you know, detached from um, uh, from the initial outcome, right, where you can just talk about planning and preparing yourselves and thinking about the future together, and that reduces pressure. Um, and then I think the second thing is um, around data. And so I think you know, there's two things that I like to share with our, you know, male reproductive partners, which is that one, um, that uh, sperm counts have dropped 60% in the last 40 years globally. Uh, I'll say that one more time. Sperm counts, right, have dropped 60% in the last 40 years. And so um, globally, right? So this is not just a US problem. This is a global problem. And so our, quite literally, our, our generation of, of males is less fertile than our grandparents' generation. And Do we so know I can't, Huh. Well, there's lots of theories. I think, you know, so much of what we do is about identifying, you know, kind of and trying to rectify the things. But yeah, certainly it's the, the headline is basically our, our bodies were designed to conceive, but our modern environment was not. Mm. And so there's a mismatch between our genes and our environment. And that has to do with the way we eat, the way we move, uh, the way we manage stress, the way we manage relationships, um, our, you know, toxins in our environment, all of these things are, uh, you know, not the way our bodies were designed to to survive and thrive pro and procreate. And so, you know, kind of all of this planning process is really about how do we communicate to our body that it's in a safe and, and abundant environment in, within which to conceive um, and send those signals right from the activities that, that you do. And wow. so, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of a big deal. And so I think, you know, when we're, when we're talking to, to male partners and thinking about this, you know, that's the first thing is, look, like if you don't do anything, you know, you are likely to be part of this statistic, um, number one. And then number two, you know, there's so many things that you, that you can do. Uh, sperm are being developed every roughly three months. You have so much power and what a male partner contributes at the point of conception is what they're contributing epigenetically to the lifelong health of their child. So like that's their jam, that's their contribution point. So what they do prior to pregnancy is literally what they're contributing um, from an epigenetic standpoint. Now certainly, of course, there's emotional support and, you know, and, and financial support and all these other beautiful things that you do pregnancy and beyond. Um, but from, you know, from the biological perspective, like your child gets what you're working with at the point of conception. So it's a really powerful contribution point for a male partner to be brought into the equation for. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's vital. And that's for something, I don't know if people realize that three months and like leading up to that. And that's one of the practices that we do too, is like the three to six months of mm -hmm. preparing the body. And I don't know if we are, I mean, a lot of the clients, when I share this, you know, if they're like, Oh, I'm going to try to get pregnant. And I'm like, Oh, do you want some Ayurvedic practices? And they're like, what do you mean? Like there's, mm. there's stuff that I should be doing to prepare for this. So maybe can you talk a little bit about what people 
just are like, oh, I'm just going to start trying versus, oh, there is some preparation. I should be thinking about this. Maybe not just next month. Let's go. Like there are some other things I could think about. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So I think like the current model based on what I've seen is most of pregnancy, pre-pregnancy preparation involves two things, going off of some form of birth control and starting a prenatal vitamin. If, if those two things happen, right. So that's kind of what's in the public um, lexicon right now. And, you know, what I would say is those two things are necessary, but insufficient Mm -hmm. for optimal health outcomes. Right. And look, could you just roll the dice and try, you could certainly do that. Right. And it is up to you and your reproductive partner to decide, you know, what, what uh, is best for you and your family. Um, But I tend to work with people that are optimizers, health optimizers. I imagine, you know, you talk to a lot of those folks as well. Right. And so we optimize every other thing in our, in our lives. And so um, if you knew that there was an opportunity to optimize, which is, I think what we're saying, um, you know, then, then why not? Um, And, you know, the worst that can happen is you get healthier and you feel better and you have better sex and you have a better relationship with your partner. Right. So like there's, there are no downsides here. Um, and so, you know, in, in much the same way that I imagine, you know, there's a lot of, you know, Ayurveda is, is beautiful when it comes to preparation. And so I think there's a lot of very similar principles, but like, how do you prepare your mind, your body and your environment? Um, and, you know, the, the thing that's really important about this is I think part of the reason that we've seen, um, uh, this not part of the dialogue is because for so many years, a lot of women in particular have been told, you know, the only remedy is to get pregnant younger, mm-hmm. um, right? And, you know, kind of age is the only predictor of, of fertility. Um, but that, you know, that message just is not supported by by science. Um, and certainly age is one factor, but it's correlative. And, you know, your chronological age, your age in years is not the same thing as your biological age, your the age of your cells. And so how you live, how you eat, how you move, the things we were talking about earlier um, are, are going to, to affect the health of your, your cells and your egg cell and your sperm cell are just another cell in your body. And so they are impacted positively or negatively by many of these things. Um, and so there is such a thing as a fertility-friendly diet. Um, there's, there's principles around stress management. There are things around, you know, how do you eliminate toxins that can interfere with your hormone levels? Um, these are a whole host of things. And to what you were mentioning earlier, this stuff takes time, right? Behave, you know, some Changing some behaviors take time. It takes time to be integrated into your body um, and for your cells to kind of get the additional nutrition you're getting or for toxins to leave your body if you stop using certain products, for example. So, you you know, we'd like it to be like a light switch, like on and off, but you know, it does, it does take a little bit of time for, for changes to be felt and, and expressed throughout our bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's one that I did. I currently did before I got pregnant right now, you know, I'm like, we took the three months and like my husband cleaned up his diet and I was like, all right, I'm going to clean up mine. I'm doing practices mm-hmm. that I know of. I didn't know that when I was pregnant with my first son, you know, six years ago now, but I'm like the second one, I was like, okay, I'm going to do all of the practices and, you know, make sure we're prepared. And I'm also going to be, well, I'm 38. And so that's where I'm like, these things can happen. I think age, I think is one that I have many people who are like, I'm 40. It's not possible anymore. Um, even though I'm like, you're really healthy. Like you're doing all the things you can. So can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I think there's a lot of frustrations there. And I'm like mm. the oldest client I've ever worked with, she was 46. So I'm like, it's, I mean, it's possible. And I think yes. that sometimes we get fed this message of like, nope, you know, you're over 35. It's all mm-hmm. downhill from here when that's not necessarily the case. Oh my gosh. I, I, you know, couldn't agree more. I think first of all, like these, these, 
names like geriatric pregnancy and advanced maternal age, they need a rebrand. They are not, they're not helpful. They are not empowering. Um, and to your point, right, they're not actually consistent with uh, what is, what is possible reproductive and so, you know, what I like to say to people is, is as long as you're still cycling, there's a, there's a chance um, for, for healthy conception. And we see this, you know, in countries throughout the world where, you know, lots of people are not told that they can't get pregnant at 46 and my mm-hmm. goodness, they happen to. Um, so I think, you know, the, there's, there's a couple of principles here. So first of all, I think for, you know, 95% of the population, egg count uh, egg quantity is irrelevant. And so we've been kind of, you know, fed this story that, you know, our egg count declines over time. And so the fewer eggs you have um, is, you know, part of the, the challenges with getting pregnant as you're older. And this is true in part, but the average woman at 40 has, you know, over 10,000 eggs left. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so oh, that's a ridiculous number of eggs to work with when you're only trying to deal with, you know, if you want to have one, two, three, even five, like, you know, a handful of kids um, is still plenty, right, with, with an with a egg reserve of that large. So, so egg quality um, and sperm quality is much more important. And, you know, I, I think this is a very similar thing to what we used to, you know, saw in the 1980s with like calorie, mm-hmm. you know, calories, right, where we were trying to be really reductionistic. And we said, okay, food, the only thing that matters with food is calories. How many calories are you eating? And we've done the same thing with fertility. It's just mm-hmm. kind of like, well, what's your egg count? And, you know, what is your age, right? And it's, it, these seem like very simple metrics and they're easy to communicate, but they, they miss so much depth of, of um, that's important. And we, we now know, okay, well, food quality matters and food composition matters. And so there's the same thing with fertility. And I, I really hope, and, I, and we're shepherding this in, we're going to start to see a change in this conversation where this is an egg quality discussion and this is a sperm quality discussion. And the quality of your life determines the quality of your cells and therefore the quality of your reproductive health. Um, and so that's why you see women like, you know, like the client you were talking about at 46, who is able to conceive, um, because I imagine she had, you know, wonderful egg quality, despite the fact that her age was 46, her biological age was probably very different than that. Um, and so, you know, instead of, and this is one of the things that, you know, we're trying to focus on is instead of using data tables, uh, you know, to say all 30 year olds are created equal, or all 38 year olds are created equal, let's actually figure out what's going on in your unique body. And so, you know, we're looking at, you know, our, our, uh, one of our testing at 49 uh, different biomarkers. And we're kind of looking at the evidence and expanding it as new evidence comes out um, to say, okay, you know, instead of waiting until you try to get a proxy for your health, how do we get an understanding earlier of what your health and what your fertility could be for your specific body on this day and your partner's specific body, rather than looking at a data table that says, you know, for your specific age, it should be X, Y, or Z. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the nutrition piece that, you know, you kind of briefly touched on there too, is such a huge factor. I went to, I had to do a, like a five-day food journal for the, mm. the birth center that I'm going to. And I handed it to the gal and she was looking at it. She's like, wow, all right, well, you eat real food. I really don't have much suggestions. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm like, is this not what you usually see? And she's like, honestly, no, you know, it's a lot of what we think. And I'm like, I get it too. Cause I look at people's food logs and I'm like, it's the, the, the healthy processed food that we get sold mm-hmm. is like healthy. Mm-hmm. And she's like, that's what I see a lot. And I get it, you know, in pregnancy, it's, it's easy and you get tired. And I think that sometimes that also, when we're preparing for pregnancy is the same thing is like what we're eating actually does really, it really matters. Do, is that something that you guys touch on too, about like, okay, what, you know, let's break down our nutrition. What is our food mm-hmm. looking like? Absolutely. So I think one of the, you know, there's so many misconceptions and you hit on, you know, this, which is, first of all, what is base, you know, like, there is such thing as a fertility friendly diet, we'll start with that. And I think that, um, you know, I, I, there are, 
so many misconceptions and so many dietary theories out there that, you know, even as a nutritionist, I do not like to give people prescriptive ways to eat. And so what, you know, what I like to say is I, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to eat. I'm going to tell you what the data says, and then I'm going to let you decide yeah. what works for you and, and your family. Um, and, you know, a fertility friendly diet is higher in fat than I think most people would, would assume. Um, it's moderate protein and moderate carbohydrate. Um, and that is the diet that communicates to your body. We're safe. It's abundant, right? Because if you go too low in any one category, it says, you know, to your body, there's famine. And you definitely don't want to bring a baby into the world if there's famine, right? And so there's also an element of like choosing really nutrient dense foods, because what I see with a lot of folks is you may be getting enough calories, enough food, but it's actually not high in nutrition, like true nutrition, like vitamins and minerals and phytochemicals. And so that, that also, you know, communicates to your body, I'm starving. Uh, because it doesn't have the cofactors it needs to make your hormones and, you know, enzymes and all these other beautiful things that happen in your body. Um, and the important thing to understand is like, you know, what your baby is using in trimester one to grow is predicated on what you ate in the, you know, three or four months prior, because um, it takes that amount of time to build it into your cell structures and so forth. And so, you know, as, as you were mentioning, like, you know, new, Pregnancy is the most nutrient intensive time of, you know, a woman's life. And so it's really important to replete those stores beforehand um, to make sure that you're in a good spot. Um, and, you know, despite the, the popular myth, a baby is not a parasite. So we think that, you know, if, if their nutrient stores are low, they'll go to the baby first, but that's not true. They'll go to the mom first, mm -hmm. because if we think about it evolutionarily, right, you have to be able to protect and take care of your child. So if you are not healthy, you can't do that. And so the body diverts resources. If you have a vitamin D deficiency, for example, going into pregnancy to you first and then your baby. Mm -hmm. And so this is for all these reasons why it's really important to, you know, to, um, you know, pay attention to and try to optimize nutrition beforehand. Um, and many of these same principles, right? apply to to a male reproductive partner as well in you know in terms of their sperm health mm. yeah i think that's that's a great thing to point out too because that's one in um in ayurveda too that we look at after let's say you have a baby and then we don't always recommend having a baby six months later because of that exact reason because you're going to be entering that second pregnancy very depleted mm -hmm. and then that's hard on you and hard on baby i mean because you're i've i've seen it and it, it doesn't always turn out great. Cause I mean, people are just exhausted and then people, you know, lose nutrients, IVs I've seen and all of those things that can kind of happen because we didn't take a longer time. So can you talk about that too? If people are like, mm. okay, baby number one, and then maybe they feel up against the clock because of their age, like I need to have a baby right away. Can you talk about why it's maybe better to space it out just a little bit to kind of replenish your own self? Yeah, I, I look, I totally get that, um, the timing pressure. Um, and, you know, when we're thinking about expanding family and, okay, if we want to have two kids or three kids and we need to have this much time and, you know, there's age and all this stuff. So there's a lot of variables to think about. And I have so much compassion for, for that. I think, you know, again, we'll, you know, we rely on the science, right? The minimum interpregnancy intervals that we see for healthy outcomes is 18 months. Um, and so certainly that may or, you know, ch may change depending on your personal situation, right? Whether you, you know, the type of birth that you had, um, the amount of time that you 
and breastfeeding, for example, your nutrition status before and, you know, and after, um, how you're taking care of yourself. There's all of these different factors that really come into play, you know, that, that could even lengthen that time period longer. But um, to what you're saying, that's exactly that reason, which is um, that it's really important that, you know, hormones are rebalanced after a, a first pregnancy or a second pregnancy. Um, it's really important that nutrient stores are repleted. Um, it's really important, um, you know, that, uh, that you have all of these things taken care of before you can see for all the same reasons. And so, you know, one of the things people often ask me about, like in the testing is, you know, is this only for first time pregnancies? Well, no, absolutely not. Because, you know, it's, it's as important, if not potentially more important, because you're likely to be even more depleted right after a first pregnancy you know, where you're running around after a baby um, and you're managing, you know, um, uh, managing a, a baby, breastfeeding, and there's so many demands on your time and your body um, that, uh, you know, I, and this, I think, is part of the reason why we see secondary infertility on the rise um, is because we're not appropriately um, repleting uh, our, our females after their, um, their first pregnancies and second pregnancies. Um, and that's where you start to see health outcomes compromised. So I would say I totally get it. Um, and also, uh, the more time that you can spend planning, I usually see there's an inverse relationship between planning and trying the more time you can spend planning and preparing the less time you can spend trying. Mm. That makes, yes, that makes total sense. I want to ask this too, because um, like, so if someone, let's say someone has a miscarriage, does that mean for them, would that be the same 18 months or is that like a different time length if someone, you know, is struggling with miscarriages, how does that kind of work with replenishing the body? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I was actually reading some literature earlier this week that was saying that it is recommended to wait six months after a miscarriage. Um, that feels like quite a long time. I, you know, I think there's like there's kind of the data, and then there's also reality, and you know, so we we kind of want to figure out that where that line is, and again, what the line is for you. Um, so you know, I think. Um, there's, there's the physical side of, of after miscarriage. And then I think there's the psychological and emotional side after miscarriage. And so, um, there's kind of, you get to define what, you know, when you feel ready to, to try again. Um, but I think there's, you know, if we just, if we were to just take a step back for a second and to take the time pressure away around kind of this, this ticking clock, I think that it might redefine the way that we're thinking about some of these, this, some of this urgency, um, and so I think, you know, most people, when they want to be pregnant, they want to be pregnant yesterday, mm-hmm. um, right? Yeah. That's, that's, you know, with, with all the clients I've worked with, that's kind of the sentiment. And I have so much, you know, so much empathy for that. Um, and, you know, also the more we push um, and, and really don't, you know, listen to kind of where our bodies are, the, the longer the timeline gets. Um, and so I think that uh, with miscarriage, it's really about looking at your body signals. So have you gotten back to a normal cycle? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, looking at, again, like keeping an eye on nutrient stores? Um, and how are your stress? How are you sleeping? Um, how are your energy levels, right? There's a lot of data that our body gives us on a daily basis. Um, you know, in addition to testing that we can do, that will give us a sense of like, how replete is my body? Um, and does it, you know, does it feel ready to kind of go for round two or, you know, round three, um, and, and really try again? Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Cause I think that will help people who are listening to and, um, I know when you talk about hormones, so often we think about like Mm. hormones and fertility, but you say that's only 30%, you know, of the equation. So maybe people are like, wait, what, you know, cause again, I think we think (laughs) hormones are everything like, right. Mm -hmm. So can you chat a little bit about what's the other 70%? Yes, yes. Um, yes, I think this is one of the, the biggest misconceptions. And by the way, it was a huge eye opener for me too. Um, you know, I, I had, you know, 
two master's degrees. And then I started learning about my own body and I was like, oh my gosh, like, you know, how did I not know so much of this um, about my own body, about my own cycles? And, and so, you know, it's just like so much that we're not, we're not taught. And so a lot of times when we talk about fertility, it's in the context of hormones, as you were saying, right. And it's usually like, we think kind of it's the below the waist conversation, right? So it's your ovaries, it's your uterus for females and it's, you know, testes and sperm for, for, for men. Um, and yeah, that's it. Like, that's all she wrote. Um, but you know, uh, your fertility is an extension of your overall health and we forget about this. And so, um, and your hormones, even your sex hormones are the most downstream, one of the most downstream things we can measure. They're, they're downstream to your thyroid function. They're downstream to your adrenal function. And so if we're just measuring sex hormones, as an example, we have no idea why they're off. Is it because you have a thyroid issue? Is it because you have an adrenal issue? Is it because you have both those things going on? And so the more we can expand the lens of what we're looking at to not just be myopically focused on hormones, the more the more information we have about where the actual issue is occurring. Um, and that gives us more places to intervene because the more upstream you can intervene, right? It affects all the things downstream. But if you're going really far downstream, right? That only affects the most downstream thing and it doesn't affect things that are happening um, you know, earlier on. And so um, this gives us a much broader lens. And so we look at five categories of which hormone status is one of them. Uh, but we also look at metabolic status. We look at nutrient status. We look at immune status, right? And so all of these things are really in blood type and status. All of these things are really important. Um, and these are the things that over the years of kind of running hundreds of lab tests and working with clients, I've identified are the things that I've seen have the potential to interfere with your ability to get pregnant and have a healthy baby. Um, and so rather than waiting until we're trying or we're struggling to identify these yellow flags or red flags, we can identify them right up front. And we can do that with you and your reproductive partner. So you know what you're working with and you can start to tackle it before you even start trying. Mm-hmm. It's like the, we have the seven layers of Datus in Ayurveda. So sort of like, oh, this makes sense because there is a whole, I mean, that's the last one that you're kind of looking at. So you're like at a whole nother six layers that we get to go through before that makes a difference. So yes, I totally, that makes, I mean, it totally clicked into place. Like, of course, (laughs) yeah, makes total sense. Yeah. I mean, it's so fun. It's, I think like what's so beautiful about the work that we're doing is it's so intuitive once you hear it, right? Like it makes sense. I think, you know, um, that, uh, that's, that's what I love about this is, you know, we have all these frame of reference. We're told, we're told this one message, but I think for so many, you know, women that I speak to, they're kind of like, I feel like there's a different way. Mm-hmm. I have a sense that this doesn't hold water. Like this doesn't make sense. I'm being told this one thing, you know, but I don't really know where else to go, but like, it doesn't feel right to me. And so I think, you know, we're, we're tapping into that to say like, you know what, your intuition is spot on. There is a better way and there is a different way. So if someone's like, you know, maybe they're at the doctor and they're like, okay, you know, the doctor recommends IVF or other protocols before maybe they've even cleaned up some of the other health habits, you know, is this kind of where your company can come in and say, Hey, let's, there's other ways or there's other things that we can do besides just jumping into IVF or other infertility treatments. Yes, absolutely. I would say there's, you know, kind of two main categories or say three main categories of, you know, folks that we can kind of walk through this process. So the first is a couple that's planning to conceive in the next year. So, you know, just like you plan your wedding a year in advance, um, we would say, okay, you're, 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 you've decided that you're, you want to conceive in the next year with your partner. It's a great time to get tested and kind of know what you're working with and get information so that you can start to, to, to address anything that might come up. 
So that's kind of that's um, what we're aiming for to, to move the conversation earlier. Um, the other two buckets of folks, and I, you know, uh, that that you know, we can certainly offer support to are the folks that you just mentioned. The folks who are um, being told that they may need to use assisted reproductive technologies. So that could be IVF, that could be IUI, um, and then you know, the, another bucket related to that is someone who wants to freeze their eggs. And so, you know, the reason I would say that is because, um, you know. Again, back to this egg quality and sperm quality question is regardless of whether you're conceiving naturally or with assisted technology, uh, what is going to uh, drive the probability of success is largely egg quality and sperm quality. And that can be mediated by diet, lifestyle, supplementation. And so if you're going to go through these processes, and this is kind of what I've done with plenty of clients, right? They've gone through a round of IVF and they come to see me. And then we work through a whole bunch of stuff together. Um, the first round didn't work. And then after our work together, upgrading a bunch of things in their life, uh, they get pregnant on the mm -hmm. second round. Um, and so this is, you know, something that um, is adjunctive to, to whatever you're doing, whether it's naturally or with, um, with a, a doctor and a fertility specialist. And if people are looking at their fertility health, would you recommend like starting this a year out if they're thinking about getting tests done or even, you know, going and working with you guys? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, I'm, I'm would again, you know, I don't, I don't tell people what to do, but I would like to offer the option of saying like, you know, this is a way for you to get a really broad picture of your health and to kind of know what you're working with and your partner know, know what you're working with. Um, and we've undercovered things like, you know, autoimmune dysfunction in folks who had no idea they had autoimmune disease, right? And it takes on average seven to eight years to get diagnosed and it's disproportionately occurring in females. So 80% of autoimmune diagnoses happen in females. It's responsible for a massive number of recurrent miscarriages. So if we could, it's an easy screening test. If we could get some sense that this is going on early, why not? Right. Another big one is thyroid dysfunction. Um, you know, we see so many folks who have subclinical thyroid function. Your doctor may be testing one or two thyroid markers. We're looking at eight. And the reason we're looking at eight is because, you know, not all of them change early on. And so we're choosing much more sensitive markers. And so to what you're saying, absolutely. Right. If you know there's an op opportunity to get more data about your body, then the earlier you start, the more, you know, opportunity you have to intervene and to do it leisurely. Right. So you can get this information and you can do it at your pace rather than tracing against the clock to, to kind of, um, you know, try to, uh, to move things along when you feel the pressure. And is your, can people, if they're listening, they're like, I would love to connect with you. Is it virtual in person or what does your um, practice look like? Yeah, so we have um, testing panels that that folks can um, can purchase. We have uh, three different tiers of testing panels for females and for males. And so we have um, an app that, um, will walk you through, you know, kind of all the different tests and what's contained in each test. And then what are the implications of your results? Mm -hmm. um, and so in addition with the purchase of uh, any of the panels, you'll get a 30 minute call with one of our pre-pregnancy experts to answer any questions that you have about your, your results. Um, and so you can not only read your you know, results and understand them, it's not like a printout that you get from your doctor that just says like a number and the test, you know, it actually contextualizes it for you. So you understand what it means and why it matters for fertility and, and pregnancy and, and um, you know, uh, having a healthy baby. 
Um, so we're really, really trying to give you a lot of information um, early on in your journey. And then of course you could certainly take those results, bring them to your doctor um, and you know whether that, you know, and, and start the conversation with them after. But it's a great starting point because a lot of times if you ask doctors to run these and I've you know, had this experience, they won't run the full panel of tests. Maybe they'll run a subset of them. Uh, they'll tell you that they're unnecessary. Um, and so if you can come to them with the data, it's actually a lot more effective starting off point to get them engaged in the dialogue with you. Mm, that's great. And if, can people, if they're not, maybe someone's listening, they're like, I'm not trying to get pregnant, but I would love to know these numbers on myself. Do you have people who just come in and get their own numbers? I do actually more and more. I think it's a really great broad panel test. So if you you know are thinking about getting pregnant in the next year or in the next couple of years, right? It's great to know what you're working with. Um, and you know we're measuring some of the same things that you get on a you know a hormone panel that you can get at, at home, um, but we're we're going much broader than that. So it's a really good uh, baseline test for your overall health. Love it. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, or even postpartum, just to have some numbers read again that you can't always get read. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I actually just had a conversation with someone about two weeks ago who was saying the same thing that she just had her first baby. And she's like, I'm not sure if I'm going to have my second one. Like my boyfriend may try to convince me, but like, I kind of know what I want to know what I'm working with. So like, maybe I'll run the test. So, you know, I have a starting point and I was yes. like, it's, it's a perfect use case. Yes. Yes. I love that. Well, if people want to connect with you, um, what's your website and any social media that you guys are on? Absolutely. Uh, so our website is getpoplin.com, G-E-T-P-O-P-L-I-N, uh, and social handles are the same, get at getpoplin. Perfect. And I'll put those in the show notes in case people are wanting to connect. Well, I just have one final question for you. I always like to ask a weekly challenge. And when I have a guest on, I have you throw out a weekly challenge to everyone. So what would you like that challenge to be this week? So I think I would encourage people to try a liver challenge. And so this is something, liver is actually uh, a very unsung hero in, in overall health, um, but certainly uh, infertility, it's um, has very nutrient dense and we just haven't found great ways to get it into our diet. And so I would encourage you to try liver in some way, shape or form. That could be purchasing at the store and trying to cook it. Um, it could be purchasing it in a powder form and mixing it into a smoothie. It could be purchasing it in, in pill form and you know trying it down, but it's a really nutrient dense food. I'm trying to get the word out and you know trying to encourage folks. I always, you know as much as possible to get it from food sources is, is great. Um, but if you got to do it in a different way, there's, you know, all sorts of other ways, give it a shot. Um, uh, it has all sorts of great vitamins and minerals. It's really nutrient dense. Um, and so, so I think the liver challenge is kind of what I would, what I would put out there. I love it. I've, I've heard about that. A few of my friends were doing it or sharing on social media. They're doing it. And it's so funny. Cause so my dad is a farmer and he will eat pretty much anything. And so my mom <laughs> on their first date cooked him onions and livers. And mm. the only food he wouldn't eat was liver. And so I've never, I'm like, I've never had liver because apparently my mom used to eat it, but then my dad was like, mm -mm, don't do He wasn't liver. having it. No. And so it's so <laughs> funny. He also won't do hot dogs, but that's for reasons. Cause he saw what goes in the hot dogs. And he's like, no, we don't do hot dogs in this family. No. So I'm like, okay. So liver, I'm like, maybe I should try. I've, I've got a good local place here. Mm. Um, so if anyone's in Minnesota, I'm like, there's a really good place in Stillwater that's supposed to have some good liver. So I might have to go Ooh. and uh, give that a shot and see if my dad, maybe I'll cook it for him. And see if he'll yes. it now. <laughs> or you could sneak it into the ground meat. Like some Ooh. butchers were actually put the liver in with the ground meat. So it's a, it's a much smaller ratio and the the flavor isn't as overpowering. So um, one of my nutritionists was just telling me about that. So I haven't tried that yet, but that sounds like a phenomenal tip. Yes. 
I'm not, I'll try that. I'll, I'll have to get back to everyone to see how this goes. See if my dad tries liver again and doesn't even know it. Sneak it in there. <laughs> yes. I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of this wisdom with us today, Alexandria. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for, for the opportunity to share and for your incredibly thoughtful questions. Thank you again. And everyone go out there and spread your peaceful power.